We started off the first episode in this series by talking about a Time Magazine cover from 1993 that featured a computer-generated multiracial person on the cover. According to a letter from then-managing editor James R. Gaines, the fictional woman on the cover was selected as a symbol of the future multiracial America. Then Gaines wrote, quote, As onlookers watched the image of our new Eve begin to appear on the computer screen, several staff members promptly fell in love, end quote. But the thing is, these staff members were falling in love with fiction, and real multiracial people and experiences have been largely absent from both representation and conversations. In the article, only one multiracial person was quoted. As we said in episode one, the multiracial experience has long been depicted, at least in the United States, through a monoracial lens, typically a white lens. This is true of both fiction and nonfiction representations. But at the same time, even though race is so often presented in binary terms, there are numerous examples of multiracial characters, real and imaginary, being presented in popular culture, not necessarily as ourselves, but as imagined bridges between those racial binaries. You can go back to the 19th century novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, in which author Harriet Beecher Stowe tried to generate support for abolitionism by depicting the plight of enslaved mixed-race people, which were among her most empathy-inducing characters. Or, nearly a century later, in 1947, a sitting U.S. senator named Theodore Bilbo wrote a segregationist manifesto called Separation or Mongrelization, in which he argued that kids from interracial couples would ruin white people and be the end of the country as we know it. Although representations of multiracial and biracial people have been changing, as we'll get into later in this episode, the truth is that those old narratives still influence how many people think. So much of what it means to be biracial, or what constitutes a multiracial experience, has historically been defined by people outside of the identity. People have leaned on caricatures, projections, and stereotypes, like the tragic mulatto stereotype. And that's the exact opposite of what we're attempting to do with this podcast. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people from multiracial backgrounds of all identities and experiences, and to highlight both the commonalities and differences in our stories. There's so much diversity, and yet I've been able to interview so many people whose experiences have, in many ways, been a mirror from my own. I'm Malcolm Burnley, a mixed-race journalist. And I'm Dara Lise Lyons, a biracial journalist and storyteller. This is the On Being Biracial podcast. It's taken a long time for people to start listening more and projecting less when it comes to the multiracial experience. Although the projecting still happens far too often and the listening doesn't happen often enough. Which, by the way, thank you for listening to our podcast and the stories of those generous enough to speak with us. That's not to say our work stands alone. There have been many other positive examples of multiracial storytelling, some of them led by voices you've heard throughout this season. What we're doing with On Being Biracial is building on the work of other mixed writers, artists, and role models. There are many incredible people who have been pushing their lived experience to the forefront of the conversation of what it means to be someone who comes from a multiracial ancestral background. In 1994, just a year after that issue of Time magazine, Lisa Funderburg published a monumental book entitled Black, White, Other. When I became a writer and I went to graduate school for journalism, we had to do a master's thesis and we were advised to pick a topic that would hold our interest for a long time. I was focusing on radio at the time and loved to hear people's stories, so I decided to do an oral history project. And it built off of my experience and my sister's experience, which 
is a very particular kind of mixed race, which is where we are stealth mixed race people. Lisa will describe this concept of what she refers to as a stealth mulatto or stealth mixed race person in episode 7 on colorism and appearances, but it's worth summarizing here. Lisa grew up identifying as mixed or biracial, but was often perceived by others as white. The concept of being stealth or white presenting refers to an experience that is unique from passing. And it didn't fit in with the more publicized versions of what mixed race was, whether it was the tragic mulatto trope or the exoticized, you know, let's see who was, I'm older than when Halle Berry first came on the scene, but she was one of the most popular public presentations of a black, white, mixed race person. And I didn't look like her. I didn't experience the world the same way that she experienced the world in terms of people's reactions to me. I decided to do a piece for radio about people who were black, white, biracial, coming to understand what race meant to Mm. them. And I wanted to have a range of people, which included people who looked like me, and then people who had different kinds of experiences. And I was fascinated by it. And I ended up turning it into a book of oral histories. And that's what Black, White, Other is, biracial Americans talking about themselves. In a glowing 1994 New York Times review of Black, White, Other, Kyoko Mori noted Lisa's book for its importance and oral history style approach. Mori wrote that Black, White, Other, quote, presented without interruption in the participants' voices, demonstrating the balance needed in any serious discussion about race and identity. And that's just one positive opinion, but there were and will be many others, including Matt Johnson, the National Book Award-winning author who wrote a foreword to Lisa's book when it was reprinted for its 20th anniversary. Here's Matt. A Black, White, and Other, Lisa Funderburg's book, had a major impact on me. One, because nothing had been done like that before, and it was the first documentation of modern mixed identity. Mix didn't exist. You were just Black and not good at it. You know what I mean? Like, it was... was You know what I mean? Like... So even the idea idea that this was a real thing, and it was also a very insular thing because most of us grew up in households where where we were the only mixed person. You can draw a direct line between Lisa's book and Matt's 2015 novel, Loving Day, which is about a biracial protagonist. And you can draw a line between them and this podcast because all those works are about mixed issues, feature mixed voices, and were created by mixed people. Here's Lisa again. I'd also noticed that this was one of the first times where a collection of adults were asked to speak about their own experience, where we weren't being represented by psychologists or sociologists being treated as pathological or a demographic subject of interest, but we were talking about ourselves. And this was back in the early 1990s. So in some ways, a very different world, and in some ways, exactly the same world we're in now. Some things have changed, not only with representation in art and culture, but also with role models. We had a Black-identifying biracial president. We currently have a biracial vice president. And there are more and more sports stars, entertainers, and influencers thoughtfully speaking about the complexities of their racial identities and multiracial backgrounds. Mixed kids growing up today have more accurate and grounded representations to help form their understandings of their races, cultures, and identities. 
That's something that came up in the three-part series we did on multiracial youth, which was funded by the National Association of Black Journalists. We'll put a link to those episodes in the show notes, and we hope you'll check them out to hear the experiences and insights of multiracial youth ages 4 to 21. But here we'd like to share a short segment from the first episode of that series. We talked to siblings Sam and Zora, who were six years old and four years old when we recorded this. In my interview with Sam and Zora, as we're talking, the two of them were playing with a cardboard printout of a series of dolls they collect, a collection that's rapidly growing. We have the ones that have curly hair like these. They have the same clothes, and and they can turn into a boy or a girl. For someone without kids, it was a newsflash to me that major toy manufacturers are making not only gender-neutral dolls, but also a wide spectrum of skin colors. We both have that one, and I'm getting, and Zora's getting this one, Veronica no, too. No, and I'm I getting this. This one. I got, I got this one and this. One. Yeah, but Zora just wanted the one I had, so I got this one and this one. We each got one black and one white. And why did you want that? Because I couldn't decide what color so, skin. Sam and Zora were so insightful and self-aware at such a young age about embracing their multiracial identities. What I found really beautiful and refreshing about those interviews was how, and not for all kids, but for many, they're growing up and seeing themselves directly represented in art and culture with dolls and in books, etc. That's certainly the case for Sam and Zora, who, by the way, is named after Zora Neale Hurston. And the more we learn, the more we know that representation has a tremendous positive impact. Right. The fact that there is more multiracial and biracial representation speaks to a shift in culture around how much multiracial experiences are seen and heard. Our culture is a demonstration of our values, beliefs, languages, and practices, and is reflected through things like stories, art, theater, music, food, politics, and more, which means that as values change, so does artistic and cultural expression. So we can see the changes in norms and beliefs by looking at shifts in art, music, movies, food, etc. Culture determines so much about the way we live our lives. Plus, it can influence how we view cultures other than our own and how much we achieve a well-rounded, expansive, and open-minded worldview. Many of the multiracial people we interviewed spoke about how coming from multiple ethnic backgrounds, specifically backgrounds of different races, has exposed them to a variety of different cultural influences. And that aligns with data from the Pew Research Center, which found six in 10 multiracial Americans believe their mixed racial backgrounds have made them more open to cultures other than their own. There's no possible way that we can incorporate all the potential cultural mediums and all forms of artistic expression or racial representation into this episode and discuss them all in depth. But we wanted to spend this episode talking about how things like storytelling, art, acting, music, food, and even podcasts can support and sustain cultural expression for biracial, multiracial, multi-ethnic folks. And for some people, the act of creating and conveying culture through an artistic medium goes beyond expression and is a form of discovery. Part of it's practical and part of it is just being a writer, being someone who tells stories. I'm not an activist. I don't even know that I'd consider myself an artist as a writer, but I feel as if storytelling is just the way that I make sense of the world. It's how I know what I think by writing things down. Charlotte Gill is the author of multiple books, including her latest Almost Brown, 
a memoir about multiracial identity dynamics and the ways in which the culture of whiteness have obscured elements of her identity and experience. Charlotte spoke about the dance she does navigating the space between races while also being ever aware that she's almost, but not quite, brown. It's partially a memoir. It's the story of my mixed up, oddball, mixed race family that I've talked about in the last little while. And it's also a really personal, to me, exploration of what it's like to live in the margin between two races. And I write about some of the experiences that I've had as a mixed race person. I write about the privilege of passing as white. It felt very important to me to write about that a little bit because I very often am white presenting depending on what community that I'm in. And it made me ask myself, what is the difference between being white passing and being white? I don't have a lot of answers to some of these questions because it would probably take me a whole lifetime to figure it out if I ever did it all. But it just felt important to work out some of those things on the page. What does it mean to pass as white and then to have people talk to you as if you are a white person, assuming you are white without realizing what the other side of your ethnicity is, and maybe to say things that are racist or stereotypical about the other half of your culture. And what does that feel like? What does it mean? It's a childhood story. It's a family story. And it's also my very personal exploration of what it means to be almost brown. I found even the title of Charlotte's book to be revealing in terms of the cultural context around race and color. And you know, one of the things that struck me is just how much color can create a disparity in experiences of and access to culture among multiracial people. I'm not saying that's not the case for monoracial folks as well, only that something that came up in a lot of our interviews was how skin color tends to shape how we relate to the world and how the world relates to us. We'll be exploring colorism in greater detail in our next episode. Absolutely. Here, though, I'll say that for myself and for many of those we spoke with, color has had a deterministic impact on which cultures and communities other people have seen us as being a part of. That's certainly been the case for me, too, and for psychologist and author Kimberly Ortiz Hartman. In her children's book, Alexa, What Color Are You?, Kimberly explores the internal culture of a multiracial family and encourages young readers to be curious about and to embrace the richness and diversity of color, both their own colors and the colors of others. Here's what she said about how her book creates a culture of openness for readers of all racial and ethnic identities. Representation is so positive in children's books, but this isn't just for multiracial, multicultural kids. This book should be for everybody to have these conversations and to learn that like not everybody looks the same. This is our world. Our world is diversifying and let's embrace it and see it as a positive thing. The book is really special to me and it's something that I I really want everyone who reads it, you know, I get so much positive feedback. And honestly, one of the best comments that I get is from biracial or multiracial adults saying, I wish I had this book when I was a kid. I hear that comment so much. And to me, that gets me right in the heart. I get that feeling of people go through their lives and feel confused. They don't know how to talk about what they are. They're constantly questions. It's confusing. And we're not even talking deeply about like when your family's actually super racist against one pieces of you, right? Like we could go deeper into this about people actually experience horrible racism from their own families. 
this is about opening this up so kids don't have to necessarily go through that. So they don't have to see that, oh, this is bad. We don't talk about this. We don't talk Mm -hmm. about these different races and that your family didn't like each other, right? This is about, let's be open and talk about this. And let's give kids some language to identify. I didn't have language to identify it. I really would just say, I'm, I think I'm this and this. I would define it in that way when I got old enough to know, but before that, it was never talked about in that way. I don't think my parents even knew what multicultural was. They never even like probably heard that term before. So this is really about giving families and communities and school language to speak to kids so they can have the words. Like kids don't have the words to describe things, but they are experiencing these things. Kids talk about this stuff, whether we support them in it or not. My conversation with Kimberly got me thinking about how the culture of white supremacy is, in my opinion, so often a culture of shame, secrecy, and silence. Absolutely. And I think when it comes to embracing cultural narratives around race, we have to be outspoken, authentic, and unapologetic. I feel like one of the reasons that I personally have always embraced my racial identity is that it was something I talked about a lot and saw reflected back to me in positive and affirming ways. I grew up surrounded by black, white, and biracial people, went to book fairs for kids of color, was part of an interracial families and multiracial children's group, and was immersed in a culture that encouraged conversations about race. I didn't even realize that was unique until I was in college or possibly even later. Yeah, it is unique. And the reality is that not everyone is open to exploring race, let alone multiracial issues. But I do think things are changing and have already changed. Especially if we look at culture and representation. For example, one analysis from a few years ago showed that between 1950 and 2018, nearly a 70-year span, more than 95% of all books published in America were written by white authors. However, BIPOC writers now represent nearly 20% of published authors, with an even higher percentage for children's books. That's incredible growth in less than a decade. Although we should note that the study only looked at the 1950s onward, it would probably be safe to assume that representation prior to 1950 was equally bleak. And unfortunately, there's not really much, if any, data on representation among multiracial authors. Yeah, it's interesting because I wrote my children's book, I Mixed, in 2008 and sent it off to various publishers. And the response I got was that the subject of racial identity was too niche and there weren't enough multiracial readers. And then 10 years later, I sent the exact same book to a publisher, and I got an email back a week later saying, we love this book, the world needs it, and offering me a contract. Charlotte spoke about that same market receptivity issue in regards to her beautiful and rich book, Almost Brown. If I had written this book 10 years ago or even five years ago, I don't know that anybody would have published it. I don't know that it would have been possible. In some ways, the discourse around race that has been sparked by the Black Lives Matter movement and other social justice groups and triggered by police brutality against Black and Brown Americans has led to expanded conversations about race and an increasing desire to spotlight stories that might not otherwise be told. They've also led some multiracial people to realize that our stories are worth telling too, and that our experiences aren't always captured by monoracial narratives. John Blake is an award-winning journalist whose memoir, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew, came out earlier this year. I think it started when I went back to cover the Freddie Gray riot uprising. The Freddie Gray protest took place literally in the neighborhood where I grew up. So it was very strange to be 
assigned by CNN to go back to cover this huge race riot where for two weeks the National Guard were called out. Baltimore was going up in flames. The national media was there. And I'm like, this is where I grew up. That building is where I used to stand in front of in the morning to catch the bus to school. These people I know, and I'm, I went there and I'm like, my whole world is coming apart because of racism, but my family is coming together despite all the racism. How did that happen? So it began to make me hungry for a story that could be something hopeful about race. And I began to realize maybe I'm living that story. And that's how the seed began. And I started to interview my father and my mother. And I just started gathering material and I started writing. And the story went in directions I'd never planned. We'll dive deeper into John's incredible story of family reconciliation in episode eight. But he said something that I think captures why art is so important, not only for the audience, but also for the creator. I said to myself, I know the inner lives of strangers more than I know the inner lives of my own parents. And why is that? And I think for a long time, I did not delve into it because I was afraid of what I would find. Because I felt like there was so much tragedy and heartache. And when I was growing up, I didn't want to think about all that complicated stuff. I wanted to be normal. I didn't want to think about racial identity. I didn't want to think about racism. I didn't want to think about these weird things that happened that were connected to my family. So I think for a long time, that's the reason I didn't delve into it. It was a habit. And also, I was afraid about what I would find. Part of what he found in the process of writing the book, in the process of reflecting on his life, was a story of hopefulness about connecting with the white family members who he'd written off when he was young because they weren't in his life when he was growing up. When people ask me about being biracial, I think sometimes they expect me to talk about, well, I spent most of my life trying to figure out if I was white or black. But I tell them, that was not my biggest internal struggle. My biggest internal struggle was between what I experienced as a journalist covering race and what I experienced as the son of this white mom and his black father, because the two conflicted. As a journalist, I became so cynical and jaded. I covered Rodney King, Ferguson, Charlottesville, and I thought white America will never change. White people can't change. But yet in my private life, I'm seeing my Aunt Mary change in ways I never expected. And it wasn't like I preached to her or I showed her all these books. It was just the relationship we had again and again, just year after year, year after year. And it's why I tell people, facts don't change people, relationships do. Not to paint too rosy of a picture, because as we know, there remains a lot of pushback to certain narratives about race, as we've seen with the paranoia around critical race theory in some states leading to books by Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou ludicrously getting banned in some school districts. As Lisa said, while some things have changed, others haven't. Here's Kimberly again. I think that being told that someone won't embrace a multiracial or multicultural book to me means that you're not going to accept multiracial and multicultural people like that. And, and that, that could be, I very much recognize that that's a little raw spot for me. And so I think that it does hurt when people say that. And I've had that experience at places where they're like, we're not comfortable sharing this book. And I'm like, okay, so what are you going to do with a multiracial child here? How are you going to embrace a multiracial kindergartner then? If you're not comfortable sharing a loving story of, you know, a colorful story of, I mean, the book is, is very colorful and in light in many ways, you know, 
how is that child going to be accepted and supported? And to me, the answer is they're probably not going to be very well. Word Radio is Philadelphia's home for progressive Black Talk media. For 20 years, WURD has been the voice of the community, providing information, insights, and conversations on the issues that matter to Black people in Philadelphia and beyond. From politics to pop culture, wellness to wealth, Word Radio's dynamic hosts cover news through a progressive Black lens and perspective. Tune in for live programming every day at wordradio.com. Download the Word Radio app, or listen in Philadelphia on 900 AM or 96.1 FM. Follow Word Radio on social media to mark your calendar for an exciting variety of community events. And become a member of the Forward Movement to show your support for progressive Black talk media. In almost every culture, there's a long tradition of stories, whether that be West African griots, indigenous culture keepers, Irish senchai, Jewish rabbis, the list is endless. Sometimes these stories are transmitted through the written word, sometimes through rich oral histories, passed down from generation to generation, sometimes in secret. And in some ways, I feel like, and maybe this is overly ambitious, but I feel like podcasts are, or at least they can be, the transmission of spoken information that both reflects and shapes culture. Yeah, I mean, they certainly allow us to bring stories and voices forward to shape discourses and to increase visibility, or I guess I should say audiability, not that that's a word. And it's interesting how popular podcasts have become, which I think also speaks to the shifts in how we transmit and receive cultural information. And because of the accessibility of podcasting as a medium, people are able to get their stories out there and heard. For multiracial people, podcasts are increasingly a place to start forming the group identity that's been denied to us in the past. That's something that came up in my conversation with Noura Elmarzuki and Zayn Hassanain. Zayn and I had, before COVID, talked about starting a podcast because right. of this middle ground space that we have to talk about this. These topics deserve to be explored because I guess I keep coming back to calling it being in the middle, but like being in the middle being a blend, not fitting fully on into these poles that society pulls you in. Nobody understands our stories. Like nobody hears them. They haven't started their podcast yet. And when they spoke to Daryl they weren't sure if they would, but hopefully they will because the world needs more of what Zane referred to as in the middle stories, essentially more nuanced and multidimensional representations. And speaking of podcasts that fill specific voids and bring forward important culture-changing conversations, Barbara Idelis Abadia-Rexash, an anthropology professor at San Francisco State University, has a podcast that really brings race and racial dynamics, colorism, and culture to the forefront of the conversation. I have a podcast in Puerto Rico, a radio program called Negras, for four years. And also I had a pilot project in San Francisco State University with El Tecolote, a newspaper, and with the Afro-Latino soundscapes. And I also participated in one episode of La Brega, analyzing Las Caras Lindas. To tell you a bit about what Negras is, it's a podcast in which Afro-descendant women talk about academic and community projects related to Blackness and racialization in Puerto Rico. The podcast promotes anti-racist education as the first step to the recognition and representation of other voices that speak from their experiences as Afro-descendants, without intermediaries. Through the podcast, listeners unlearn myths that historically have degraded visibly Black people in Puerto Rico. 
talk about changing culture and whether we're looking to change culture or not, bringing stories forward in and of itself has an impact on culture and also an impact on those being asked to share. Rachel Goh, for instance, created the Mixed Movement podcast with her siblings because she wanted to amplify other multiracial voices and also because she wanted to explore her own cultural heritage as a biracial person who identified as white until after she became a mother. I really love hearing about people's upbringings, being mixed race, and what kind of meshing or merging of of cultures people have created. Because when you are first generation mixed race, you are in this really unique position where you, you get to pick a little bit and create your own cultural identity. So that is one thing that I always really want to know about. And Truthfully, as far as upbringing and the experiences that we were faced, that my guests have been faced with is very interesting to me because therein lies a lot of commonalities for biracial people. A lot of us have been asked the same questions. I don't want to say I take solace in knowing that other people have (laughs) had to navigate really weird and unique situations, but knowing that a lot of us are not, we're not alone. We've had to come up with some pretty quick comebacks. And my hope is that over time, who are my listeners can help put these little nuggets of information in their back pocket for either themselves or their children. When they go about life, they know how to better handle these situations and these questions. And as far as who I really do love focusing on the everyday person. I'm actually really excited. So close to launching season two, which your interview will be in there. We'll put a link to the episode with Darylise's interview in the show notes. As Rachel shared, there's a blending that doesn't always, but certainly can, come from being part of more than one culture and having access to a number of cultural influences. There can be a lot of validation that comes from hearing about other people's experiences. Seeing them as well, Sarah Gaither, a psychologist and researcher at Duke University, shared about the importance of bringing real-life narratives to the screen and how authentic stories have played an important role in shifting depictions of biracial folks away from tragic mulatto narratives or stories of passing to present more well-rounded, versatile depictions. There's also great documentaries that are coming out now. There was one I was actually just featured in that hopefully will be out on PBS later this year. We'll see. So I'll let you all know called Mixed. We just did a screening of it on Duke's campus a couple weeks ago. There are more and more groups creating these documentaries that at least are giving a more lay person's view and opinion, right? Kamau Bell just has his new special on HBO that's coming out as well that's made much more for the common everyday person to sort of reflect upon what it means to be biracial or interracial relationship. So I, I'm excited that the media is going in this new direction. It's also not just a, a woe is me biracial story, which is what a lot of the current media has been. We'll put a link in the show notes to Mixed and W. Kamau Bell's 1000% Me, his documentary that Sarah is referencing. They were both incredibly evocative and informative, and we feel fortunate to have been able to bring you the voices of both Sarah and W. Kamau Bell. Yeah, I was honored to interview both of them. And for those of you who haven't heard of W. Kamau Bell, in addition to being the creative mind behind 1000% Me and the father of three biracial daughters, he's a comedian, filmmaker, TV producer, and podcaster who has been involved in such notable projects as We Need to Talk About Cosby and Totally Biased. 
Even with his substantial body of culture-shifting work, Kamau is aware that part of being an agent of change is being subjected to pushback. As my daughter asked me, like, are there people who hate the documentary? And I was like, yeah, of course. The people hate everything. There's always going to be people who hate. But the thing that I hold on to and the thing I hear most, and I see it on Instagram all the time, is mixed race adults who say, I feel seen by this. And or say, I wish I had it when I was a kid, but I'm happy to have it now. The more we can get stories out there that are reflective of the scope and spectrum of human identities, the more affirming it is for those in need of that reflection and recognition. It's not just the dolls that Sam and Zora were playing with. It's fictional and real-life people tackling multiracial issues and pushing back against assumptions about them. Like in the Netflix show, Ginny and Georgia, which is a lot like the Gilmore Girls, but with the additional dimension of race, since the show features a relationship between a white mom and her biracial daughter. Ginny and Georgia has received criticism for not tackling the thornier, more complex issues of mixed identity. But the fact that there is a show that even addresses some of those issues at all is a far cry from when I was growing up. There's a growing list of TV shows shedding light on some of these experiences to varying degrees, such as the Colin Kaepernick-inspired show Colin and Black and White, Mixed Dish, Dear White People, and more. For people of every identity, there's value in seeing ourselves on screens and on stages. Both in a metaphorical sense, as in seeing those who share an identity, and literally, as in being on a stage or screen oneself. Darylise and I spoke with several people who either had a history of or are currently acting. Hannah Wallace, who works in museums now and still clearly has an interest in the arts, shared about how back in high school, she was heavily involved in drama. So I was in a very diverse high school and in musical theater, the show that you do oftentimes has to reflect the cast. It doesn't have to, but it kind of is odd when you do a sound of music you know, <laughs> right. with a very black and, and Latinx <laughs> class, you know? Yeah, yeah. So because of the composition of our students, we did Hairspray, Ragtime. Yeah, well, Hairspray and Ragtime, those were like two shows that I know those shows were specifically chosen because we had such a diverse cast. And that's how I met my primary friend. I was from those shows and those shows spoke about race and this was the only place that race was really spoken of in our school. So, you know, we tried to get a sense of, of the way we walk through the world through a theater show. And we took it very personally. Like, we're like, okay, we're the black cast. We're going to hang out and do black cast things. And, you know, we, we took it outside of the theater, which can be an odd thing to do, you know, because like when you go back into regular life, but like now you're operating as like a unit and a unit somewhat based on race. Not really, because it was a very loose casting system. Funny story, I was also an actor, and I still do some acting. And back in middle school, I was in The Sound of Music, and I played the part of the Baroness Schrader. I have an atrocious singing voice, and the Baroness was the only non-singing role in the show. But that was back when I was in middle school, and way before the current emphasis on accurate onstage representation. That was something that Carter O'Brien Ford talked about, how important it is to be true to the integrity of a piece as an actor and to take responsibility for maintaining not only the essence of a character, but also their cultural and racial complexity. Carter is an actor based in New York and Philadelphia. I was asked by an old teacher of mine if I wanted to be a part of this summer outside Shakespeare experience that she was doing because I've won a few Shakespeare Awards as a kid. And when she asked me originally, she wanted me to be a Midsummer Night's Dream. That show got canceled. And then when she came back to me, she said, hey, we're doing Othello now. I don't know if you feel comfortable with that. And I really liked my teacher for asking me what I felt comfortable doing in the show. And her assistant director was like, Carter's one of my favorite actors. I mean, sure, we can audition, but why don't we just offer him Othello right now? 
And I told the assistant director that there's no world where I would play Othello unless it was a crazy retelling of the story. Like there's just absolutely no world. And that's when the teacher pitched to me if I wanted to play Iago. And she had this very, a very interesting take on Iago and all of his jealousy and all of his hatred for him. Mm-hmm. And maybe it being spawned from the fact that him being from Italy and him being a mixed race person who still couldn't make it in the ranks. And then this dark skinned more made it to the ranks actually fuels his jealousy even more. And we talked about how in the script, she read the script a few times to discover that the only person who ever calls him the more while Iago is in a scene is Iago. So no one else says those words around him as if we were talking about, if I was in a situation, someone might call a black person that they're jealous of or that they're envious of the N-word, but they wouldn't do it in front of me. Even if I said it and gave them permission, they still would be like, hmm, let's not say in front of Carter. Carter's a 6'3 man who's already talking about how much he hates this black guy. Let's not say the N-word in front of him. I found the level of deliberation that Carter puts into even being open to taking on a role fascinating. And I see a lot of integrity in that, especially because it can be challenging to obtain acting roles. There are many people who would be willing to take whatever role they're offered, but Carter really seems invested in maintaining integrity and authenticity when representing a character. That's not to say that other actors who may not have the privilege or the financial resources to turn down those roles lack integrity, just that I admire Carter's approach and think that in general, thoughtfulness is important. Absolutely. I also appreciated Carter sharing about how being a multiracial person in acting when so much of acting involves auditioning and being assessed by others can be really complicated because how others perceive him doesn't necessarily match who he is. And then on top of that, how some people perceive him won't be how others perceive him. And he's often more aware of those nuances than the people who are casting him. I don't audition anymore, really, for a few reasons. And One of those reasons is because I, as a writer and someone who wants to do other pieces and wants to be a part of the actual writing, I do believe that a lot of audition processes that happen are very, very old, very outdated, and they are very demeaning. And they often don't even get you to get the right person for the role. You you get the person who is trained well enough to pitch themselves in less than a minute. And Sure, that's an amazing skill, but is that a skill that you want for a show running three weeks to three months and being in the rehearsal process and everything else? And the other big reason that I don't audition a lot is the way that someone views my identity, it happens very quickly. And especially when you have a director or a producer, their opinions of you as an actor or just whatever you are on the production, they're pretty much solidified from the moment that they meet you. I feel like I'm pretty good at being in a position where I get hired for a different job or meeting new people and really speaking about myself, teaching them about myself and eventually molding an identity that they can have of me, a perception that they can have of me that fits the identity that I personally feel. But in the theater world or film or whatever, I've always found that a director or producer, for the most part, there are great people out there. But as an umbrella term, what they assume about you at the beginning is what they assume about you. So if I walk into a room and I have a white director who sees my hair, sees that I'm slightly darker than some of the other people, likes my tone of voice, likes the way that I quote unquote talk white or whatever, and they want to cast me as the black character, I'm already ahead of them thinking that there's going to be audience members who aren't particularly happy that I was cast. And it doesn't really matter that I got the gig. I want to make sure that I'm doing a portrayal that's true to it. 
And I've been in a few situations where I've had to tell or ask a director, like either at a callback or when being offered the role, for the most part at the callback, because I don't want it to go that far, but at a callback saying, hey, what is your idea of this character in this piece? Especially if it's a new piece, I'm like, hey, what does the playwright want out of this character? Or if it's an old piece that I've already read and I know very well, it's like, what, what are we getting out of the piece? Like me being cast this way. Carter told me about how his first ever acting role ended up being highly problematic from a racial standpoint, although he only became aware of that after his performance. It was a weird retelling of, I believe it was The Jungle Book. I was like seven or eight years old, and I believe it was a retelling of The Jungle Book, and everyone played a bunch of different animals, and I played a monkey, and I was very happy to play a monkey. And I played it very well, if I do say so myself. But um, my mother was very upset that the, she wasn't upset with me, but she was upset yeah. that this theater allowed the black kid in the room to play a monkey. I went a little further. I mean, I was a kid, but to go so yeah. into it. And yeah, and I just remember how upset my mom was at that moment because my dad, my dad's always the kind of guy to come over to me and just be like, hey, bud, we love you, but your mom was upset about this. So at seven or eight, did you know why she was upset? Did you understand what was happening? Yeah, she had to explain to me that it was a derogatory term. Sometimes culture is reflected in terminology and language. And in fact, language both shapes and is shaped by culture. For instance, the Lakota people used to refer to white folks as greedy ones, or Sanskrit has 96 words for love, or so I've read. Think about what these realities reflect in terms of how people in India might view love and affection or how the Lakota people might see acquisition or whiteness. Exactly. Language shapes how we make sense of the world. At the same time, attempts to destroy and eradicate language also shape, or at least influence, our collective history. I spoke with Tyler Sloan, an actor and artist from Canada, who spent a good portion of their early life in New Zealand. They spoke about their upbringing and then later experiences as someone who was stripped of their access to their language. We were living in this little town called Paihia in the Bay of Islands in New Zealand. And unlike in Canada, you get raised bilingually. So you'll learn like Maori culture and like the Hakka and what have you as you're learning English at the same time. Whereas in Canada... Even English and French is really divorced, even though those are like the two bilingual languages. And indigenous cultures was not spoken about, at least not in my experience, in my Mm. education. But I did grow up with a sense of indigeneity because of New Zealand. My formative years and a lot of therapy has like shown that I had a connection to the Maori culture. And especially because New Zealand is a place, or at least where we were in Paihia and then later in Auckland, that everyone was tan and everyone was brown. I was raised in that. And then we had to come back to Canada for some family reasons. And when I came back to Canada, the immigration and migration was very difficult. It was not as common as folks may know or experience now. I got put through like speech impediment classes to try to like take out the Maori New Zealander Kiwi accent because I wasn't speaking proper Canadian English faced a lot of racism. I lived in a predominantly white community. In my grade alone, which was like about 150 people all the way from K to 12, there was like five of us that were people of color. And most of those people didn't arrive until I got into high school. So when I came in grade one, I'm experiencing a lot of racism. I was in a speech impediment class with one person who was from Newfoundland. And Newfoundland has a very thick dialect accent and someone who'd become a friend of mine from Florida who had that Southern accent. And all three of us 
we're being put through this thing to get rid of that cultural speak that we grew up in. That's so violent. Um, it was very violent. Tyler shared about how they didn't even recognize the violence that stole their access to their language or the impact that it had until embarking on their path as an actor and coming up against limitations as they tried to adopt a voice that didn't feel authentic. And then when I went to college and then I learned about standard American English, which is the dialect that you must use in order to be on American television, all mm -hmm. of the Hollywood actors use it, even yes. if they yeah, yeah. from somewhere else. And so I tried really hard to do that. But so wild to this is that I was working with a voice teacher when I was in my final year of my theater program. And he was so confused as to why I had this nasality in my voice. He understood the effeminacy and he had witnessed me. I, I call it my bartending voice. It's my <laughs> kind of like lower masculine voice that I would use when I was bartending. I used to be a bartender for six years in a server because people take you more seriously when you are more of the gender that they perceive you as. So he was frustrated with me. And then he started playing British dialects for me. And I was like, okay. And he was like, mimic them. And so as he's listening to me, he begins to realize that it's not quite like Britain or Scotland or Ireland. And so then he goes to Australia and he's like, it's almost close. And he plays a couple dialects from New Zealand and he finds the, my original dialect. And he had this teaching that he told us that everyone has a perfect pitch that their voice really resonates through and can be very clear. And the job of an actor is to find that. And so when I was speaking in a Kiwi accent that I hadn't spoken in a very long time, suddenly my voice, I want to say enriched and deepened and was really clear and was really resonant. And I wouldn't like really work through this till later in therapy, but I was like, oh, the trauma of the speech impediment class that I mentioned earlier has now affected my acting now and my voice ongoing. I asked Tyler to describe the experience of returning to a dialect they'd had no access to for over a decade. Yeah, the dialect, I loved it. I loved it. I loved how I sounded. I loved how it felt in my throat. It didn't last long because I was friends with white actors who'd be like, that's not how you sound. <laughs> yeah. You don't sound like that. Kind of like the way that people treat Austin Butler post Elvis with the Elvis voice. So I, I did have to let that go. It's sad to lose elements of culture, whether we've ever had access to them or not. And language can be such an important dimension of our cultural heritage. Sadly, many of the world's lost languages weren't so much lost as they were stolen. By 1920, nearly half of all the indigenous languages were wiped out in the modern-day areas of Australia, the U.S., South Africa, Argentina, and other countries due to colonization and globalization. And the problem continues to this day. According to the nonprofit The Language Conservancy, more than 90% of the 7,000 languages currently spoken in the world are expected to go extinct within the next century. On Being Biracial is funded by the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, a partnership of 29 local newsrooms focusing on issues that affect the daily lives of Philadelphia residents. The PJC is dedicated to bridging the divide between communities and journalists and increasing community-centered, solutions-based journalism that promotes inclusivity and equity in news reporting. To learn more, visit resolvephilly.org PJC.
Here's Drew Almond, the project director of the Virginia Tribal Education Consortium, speaking about the erasure of indigenous languages and culture through the education systems in the U.S. and Canada. Whether that happened gradually and in a less, a less oppressive way, or whether it happened with people, kids being taken away from their homes and put into boarding schools where they weren't allowed to speak their own languages. Yeah, I think it's it's just one of the ugliest parts of, of our history. It, it doesn't really get talked about a lot. I mean, I think that's consistent with some other things that we don't talk about very much in, in this country, but you're totally right. And I was reading recently a quote. There's a, a book called, I don't know if you're familiar with Elements of Style. So there's an Elements of Indigenous Style, and it talks about how to use language and terms and names and styles and how they're not locked in and they evolve. And you want to be conscious of these things because decolonization of, of language, it happens over time. And we're not at a fixed point in history. And there are some interesting things, some of which are things that I think about, some of which I hadn't. For instance, if I'm referring to the tribes that I work with, I wouldn't say Virginia's seven federally recognized tribes because they're not part of Virginia. Those are, are sovereign nations. So you could say the sovereign indigenous nations that are within the Commonwealth of Virginia. And it's, it might sound like semantics, but it really is the way we talk about things and it has an impact on the understanding of those things. Yeah. I mean, language both reflects and is reflective of ideology. So if we're looking to shift people's paradigms, it's important to be mindful about what's said. And also, I think what's said and how people say it really illuminates how their thinking works. Totally. Yeah. Dear Elise, I especially appreciated Drew sharing how seemingly subtle differences in framing can alter how a message or idea is received. Also, in any discussion of culture and language and multiracial, multicultural identity, I think it's important to bring up that for some people, language isn't stolen, but access to their ancestral language can still be denied. I'm thinking of how several of those we interviewed of Latinx or Hispanic descent shared about how they wished they had greater access to Spanish. That was certainly the case with Ashanti Martin, the general manager of the Philly Black Talk radio station, Word. And Word, we should add, is one of our community partners on this podcast. I was jealous that I couldn't speak Spanish. My mom did not encourage my father to speak Spanish around me because in the 70s, it was changing at that time. But there was a perception that even if you had a little bit of an accent, it would work against you. Now we know that it's good to teach kids language. It's good for their brains. It's good for their job prospects, all these different things. But back then it was different. So yes, me not being able to speak Spanish made me feel very much like an outsider among my Puerto Rican family and like friends. It's terrible that there have been so many onslaughts against the cultures of those of marginalized identities. Sarah Bella Rocha, who is a tailor and artist, shared about her reflections about how even amidst attempts to eradicate culture, we can see resilience and persistence. She asked a powerful question. How to protect a culture, right? Like, for example, going back to the Pihau, I looked into seeing like about the language and they're like extinct that language is extinct you know primarily a spanish speaker but if you go there and you hear the names of fruits or certain plants the language is still there 
to be heard of what they're describing. Or you have what I feel like uh, artifacts that are still left over. And I, I feel more for like the Native American community of that situation where all your ancestors' possessions are like in a museum, you know, away and collected. Like I see the gold waxings from not just the Pihau, but like it was like the Muska tribe or the Nazca or the Embeda, you know, are all there. Some still speak the language and they're actually in Colombia right now. I was there in April visiting my abuelita and my tia and prima because uh, all our birthdays actually are in April. And oh. we never celebrated. <laughs> and so I was like, we got to celebrate. All this craziness happening. Let's go down there. And it was great. And on the very last day as I was leaving, they were having a huge protest in the capital, Bogota. And it was actually about police brutality. And also the indigenous tribe were really fighting, trying to protect the Ambeda tribe, was trying to protect their land in Choco because of just modern day colonialism still very much in place and pushing them out with developers. And it's a whole other level of fight. I think you do have to protect some identity and culture because it should be celebrated and you can learn from it. But also realize that we're all sharing the whole experience together. So I feel like it's beautiful to have the diversity. We need the diversity and we should protect and respect it. This idea of protecting and respecting culture is important. At the same time, when we're thinking about the cultures of those of us who grow up with a blend of different influences and varying exposures, it can be helpful to recognize that culture morphs. Not to say that that's only the case for multiracial people, because it isn't. All cultures evolve, and all cultures require nurturing to remain active and alive. Here's Azaria Keys, Assistant Director for the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture at the Fox Business School at Temple University. Azaria is also one of Darylise's co-hosts for Season 3 of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. I hear stories from biracial kids all the time where a white woman will have a child of color and intentionally or unintentionally almost keep them from their culture. And that's like, in my mind, one of the worst things that can be done. And my mom is really into home decor and growing up her ancestral roots are Irish. So she would have little Irish things all over the house. And then she would have just as much black art, black artists, black owned biz. She would prioritize shopping with us in those businesses. And yeah, just a ton of artwork in the house that was created by black artists. Before I even understood the term representation, my mom was building a space that represented who my sister and I were. And I think for a single white mother, how powerful it was for her to recognize that before DEI and everything was such a hot topic, she was doing everything she could in her her power and with her knowledge to build a space for my sister and I to one day become exactly who we are, which are these empowered women who own who we are and who know confidently who we are because of what she didn't keep us from, what she brought to us, what she brought us to in terms of the communities she required us to be a part of. We grew up in a Black church and my mom, little white lady, would be in the Black church with us every Sunday. But she could have easily taken us to a predominantly white church and that would have changed a lot. But she often 
she's never said even if that has made her uncomfortable, but I'm sure there are times where she's very aware of what she looks like in spaces, but she sacrificed her level being comfortable for us feeling like we belonged. So it has incredibly shaped everything that I am today is because of her choosing to parent like that. What Azaria shared is really powerful. And in my experience, it's also spot on. It's important to be exposed to our cultures and even in some cases to revisit ancestral influences. Samante Cruz, a mixed race and mixed gender metalsmith living in British Columbia, told me about how becoming a goldsmith has enabled them to access their cultural roots in a way that feels not just self-actualizing, but spiritually fulfilling. Essentially, in 2010, I was hit by a car and broke my neck. And the job that I had previously was just a challenge. I had kind of tried to get back to it for about four years after the accident, and it was just clearly not sustainable for me. And so I essentially went on medical leave and tried to figure out what my life was going to look like next. So took about a year off. Uh, I did a lot of journaling and research and writing and went to like career counseling and essentially landed on this small community college in the interior of British Columbia, Canada, that had a goldsmithing, silversmithing mm-hmm. program. And everything about it, like I had made lists of things that I wanted to do, like things I wanted in a career, and it literally ticked off everything on my list. And it was something I had never considered before. Like I hadn't made jewelry since I made like friendship bracelets as a child. (laughs) Yeah. But once I thought of it, I was like, oh my God, this is the thing I've been looking for for a long time. And just went into it, dove right in and like have never looked back basically. So that was 2015. I started my training. I graduated in 2017 and I've been running a business ever since. It definitely feels like a a calling, and that's the best way I can describe it, is I had a calling. I didn't know where the calling was coming from, but I answered it, and I followed it, and I honestly feel like my ancestors are guiding me to this point of my life, and yeah, it just feels like everything that I've done in my life has kind of led up into this moment where I'm on a really clear path, and I can kind of see where I'm going. Samante described how coming to goldsmithing felt like coming home to themselves and to their culture. Things that I do in my day-to-day are things that my ancestors did thousands of years ago. And I don't know, there's something really powerful about that. And there's a reason my ancestors worked with gold. They really believed that it was a material that protected us spiritually and physically, and that it could harness the goodness of our souls. And that's something that really speaks to me in terms of just decolonizing my own mind and my own heart and tapping into belief systems that maybe don't make sense (laughs) 100%. But there's something really intriguing to me about it. And I feel like I'm going down a road and I, I like the journey so far. I'm excited to like continue to learn and continue to see the kinds of work that my ancestors created. I personally believe that as humans, you know, we put meaning onto objects. And I think that's one of the powers of jewelry or adornment in general is like, you have this object that maybe somebody wore for 50 years, and that person passes away, and you still have the object, like you can't help but associate that material thing with the person. And like, 
knowing that that was on someone's hand for their entire life. And I don't know, like, I just, I feel like whether it's true that that person is taking up space in that object, or if it's just a reminder of that person, I feel like either way, that's powerful. There is power in the things that we create, whether that be things that we hold or wear or look at. My brother Ian Burnley, who's an artist and filmmaker, spoke about his work in a way that really brought home how self-revealing visual art can be. As a visual artist, it's like I'm almost trying to create a world or a space that I feel comfortable in. I know that sounds like hippy-dippy, but it's, I think, important to also invite other people to begin to see the world through your eyes or from your point of view. If point of view has to do with your body, then it also has to do with identity, both in a, a literal way and a metaphorical way. Yeah. That was really powerful. I really, well, I want to sit with that for a minute. After sitting with it, I thought about how much power art can have to influence and instruct, how it can move people and make statements. Ian's work does that for others. And for him, he'd been similarly impacted by the work of others. There is an artist that I looked to beginning when I was a, a teenager, when I was like 17. I learned about her work for the first time. Her name is Adrienne Piper, and she's very much a conceptual artist. She has a, also a background in philosophy and is really known for her work in the 1980s related to race and identity. And she made a lot of work about passing, like her mother's black, her father's white, and she's often read as being white, just in day-to-day experience, because she has lighter skin and straight hair. And so she made a number of performance art pieces that dealt with her experiences of being biracial, but being read in certain ways. Yeah. So Adrian Piper did this series of pieces called Calling Card or Calling Cards. And she printed out a number of business cards that she would hand out to people. This was one of the cards that she would hand out to somebody who said something racist, but didn't realize that they were talking to a Black person. Dear friend, I am Black. I'm sure you did not realize this when you made or laughed at or agreed with that racist remark. In the past, I have attempted to alert white people to my racial identity in advance. Unfortunately, this invariably causes them to react to me as pushy, manipulative, or socially inappropriate. Therefore, my policy is to assume that white people do not make these remarks, even when they believe that there are no black people present, and to distribute this card when they do. I regret any discomfort my presence is causing you, just as I am sure you regret the discomfort your racism is causing me. So this is a performance piece she would do. She would actually hand out this card to people as a way of defining who she was and dealing with this problem of being misread. Malcolm, I found that to be so powerful and wonderfully disruptive of the cultural status quo. It also speaks to how many times she must have experienced moments of discomfort with people saying those sorts of racist remarks in her presence regularly enough that she would make those cards. And I think it spoke to me in terms of thinking about how art can work both ways. It can either reinforce degradation, dehumanization, or I guess we could call it ignorance, 
or it can disrupt and interrogate it. To be clear, plenty of art and culture that's produced by artists from underrepresented groups is in fact regressive and full of stereotypes. Tyler Perry, I'm looking at you. But on the whole, artistic representation matters so that more creators of various identity groups can guide the artistic interrogations into those groups, which has not been the norm historically. Darylise, in your interview with Kat Dyson, a biracial visual merchandiser and planner, Kat spoke about how she studied the white representation of people of color. I did my thesis on the Western eye of Eastern bodies. So basically, as the Impressionists started to breach into Turkey, to India, Morocco, how they were representing the societies that were over there were highly sexualized, idealized. And I just always thought that that's how, I don't know, sometimes that's how people look at you. They see like what they want and they can interpret it however they want to other people. I just always thought that that was, that was interesting. I asked Kat what she took away from the process of studying how Westerners study Easterners, specifically how they study the bodies of those in the global majority. Definitely more validating that people can have opinions and what is that saying? Like you look through a peephole or something and you only see one part of, of an image and you can go and tell someone about it, but it's not the full picture. So I think validating that no matter what people see and want to assume, it's not necessarily the whole picture. There's a lot more to you than what people see of you. And more than we see of ourselves as well, especially when our focus is restricted to external elements, such as how we and others look. I'm thinking about a scene from in the 1000% Me documentary when Kamal Bell asks his daughter, well, I should just let him tell it. At one point in the doc, it's at the end, I asked Sammy, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? And I was literally asking her a question that I was posing a question about skin tone. And she goes, you know, I don't think mirrors really say everything about who you are. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> okay, Alice Walker. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, like, okay, Toni Morrison. Okay, Maya Angelou. Like, it was just like, I was trying to ask a very surface level question and she refused to take it in a surface level way. I think that's one of my favorite quotes ever. Mirrors don't tell us everything, yet there can be so much culture contained in our external presentation. I'm thinking specifically of those we spoke with about the power of clothing and jewelry to convey elements of culture. It's important to acknowledge that many of the keepers of culture, those doing work to preserve and maintain and expand what is real and beautiful, had their contributions devalued, both presently and in the past. We've all heard the tropes of the starving artist, and most actors and musicians don't have hit roles in series or world tours where people pay $300 a ticket to see them. Not to mention food service workers who not only bring people sustenance, but who were shown to be both essential and underpaid during the recent COVID-19 pandemic. Let's talk about food for a moment, because food is undeniably a cultural repository. Right. Food came up in a number of our interviews, as well as in the culture episode we did last year featuring youth voices. Why don't we share just a few of the many clips from this season's interviews in which people shared with us what a central role food has played in connecting them with their cultures and in creating some of their most cherished childhood memories. I would say through food, that's just like a, a real, I'm sure it's a commonality among a lot of people. So just like arroz con gandules and 
and eating, you know, whenever you're getting ready for a holiday, it's just knowing what you're eating and how to make it and where to get the best pateles and making the chuletas, fried pork chops and the rice and beans and like just cooking. It does kind of ground me in my heritage because I do feel Puerto Rican because of my family, because of just growing up and the things we would talk about. So whenever I went down to New Orleans, I'm like, oh, these are my people and all the foods that New Orleans has to offer. My grandmother and my mom would always make Creole food. And we grew up on that always, especially gumbo during the holidays and things. I think food is a big part of my life. And I would often spend time with my mom in the kitchen. She was kind of the main person cooking. And so I felt like I kind of liked to be in on the action and just see what was going on, smell different things. And that's, I think for me, like sharing time over a meal is really important. And a lot of what she would cook was influenced by her time in Cuba, her background with her parents being Chinese, and then having lived in the US for now for the majority of her life by mixing Chinese and Cuban foods and styles. I want to show that there is a great combination that can come from that, even if it's not expected. There's a lot about being a multicultural person that's unexpected. Your family might have a variety of different dishes on the dinner table, celebrate holidays from an array of religious traditions, speak multiple languages at home, share stories from opposite sides of the world, or any of a number of other examples of the multiculturalism that can shape our upbringings and our entire life trajectories. And it can do this in ways we want it to and appreciate. I really do enjoy being someone who can grab from a lot of different cultures. Or in ways that may or may not serve us. The decisions that I make as an adult are impacted by the cultural norms that I had as a child that I don't even still agree with anymore, but I still carry them as a thread. And so then there's like parceling all of that out. <laughs> Where do I sit? Zayn Hassanayn asks a powerful question. Where does he sit? Where we sit in terms of our culture and identity can be fluid as opposed to fixed. That's a common experience for multiracial people, and one we discuss at length in episode three, in which we talk about identity fluidity. Malcolm, there are so many elements of culture we won't be able to explore in this episode, such as music, clothing, dance, sports, etc., that can be pivotal to our experiences. But one thing I think we should talk about that shapes culture a lot and that's tied up in representation and race and identity is politics, specifically representation in politics. In so many of the interviews with multiracial people, maybe unsurprisingly, the subject of the former president Barack Obama came up. And it came up in such a way that people seemed at once to feel a sense of gratitude and love at seeing a biracial black president in office and to want to acknowledge both things about him, his biracial identity and his black identity, as well as how his presidency shaped their own understanding of the culture of race in America. Here's Hannah again. I guess, yeah, reflecting on Obama's presidency, that was 2008. I think I want to say I was 12, I want to say I was 12 years old, almost 13. So very formative year. Right before, yeah, right before getting into high school, so about 12 or 13. I always remember my dad standing in front of the TV practically like as far away from where I am to my screen as he was to the TV, just like waiting. Is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? So our house practically flipped over that night. We were so happy. You know, I was young enough that like, I'm like, man, this is significant because I've just never seen my dad. I think he had a tear in his eye. I was like, I've never seen him cry. I've never seen him 
be so invested in something like like the Super Bowl doesn't do this to him, which is man loves football. So I know this is a big deal, I guess, because the language surrounding Obama's presidency was that, you know, he's the first black president, first black president. And I funny enough, like I didn't put two and two together. I think I was just at that age where like I couldn't (laughs) put it together. I'm like, he's biracial like me. He's the first black president. I must be black. Like I didn't that didn't cross my mind really at all. Just not observant, I guess. In so many circles, it was a sigh of relief and it, like relief. And can't believe we did that. I can't believe he's, he's our president. I'm just now getting to the age where I'm starting to see, even notice politics. So I guess it, it you know, I didn't really have as much appreciation for like the long road that, that has been traveled to the Obama presidency. But that's kind of how it was spoken of. It definitely like the whole post-racial society, like that set in very fast, but also the sense of he's black but like not really the black president. I remember some conversations of that, but I stayed on the periphery. And here's Sarah Gaither again. Barack Obama, right, former president, was a good example. Although I joke in that he had all these shirts for representation, you know, nurses for Obama, whoever for Obama, but there was no biracials for Obama t-shirt when he ran for office because I looked very hard to try and support his campaign. He ended up identifying slightly more as black during his campaign, right? Even though he has an entire book about being biracial. And I think that's, this good example, right, of this fluidity and flexibility that depending on what your goals are or what your current context is, you're going to distance or claim certain identities more than the other. I think, you know, the word biracial, multiracial, mixed race, whatever it is that's out there, it's not the most common category still, right? Even though it's this fastest growing youth group in the U.S. and all of these things, if you ask the average person to name out racial groups, a lot of people aren't going to randomly say multiracial or biracial. We'll say all the monoracial, monoethnic categories. So I think because of that, especially if you're running for political office, you're trying to get votes. So cognitively, I need to be able to remember who you are, what you are, what you stand for when I go into the polls. So labeling you as biracial, someone would be like, what does that mean? That actually can affect me remembering you properly to gain your vote in the high stakes election. So I think for those types of positions, there's certain reasons why people may have chosen some things over, over others. And here's another segment from Kat in my conversation. Another thing that annoyed me so much was when Obama was elected and everyone kept saying that he was the first black president. And I was just like, but hold on. <laughs> I'm like, there are others. <laughs> like, there's gray people. Like, come on for the biracials. Let's go. I was only a little heated about that because think about it. Like that one drop roll that hangs over people's heads. Are we really going to roll with that? Can we really just make more races? Like we have the power, we can just do it. There's plenty of slurs that include multiple races, but why can't we, why can't we own them? Why can't we have them? Why can't Obama be one? Let's go. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I also feel like in some ways it really leaves out a lot of the story when people who are multiracial or biracial are presented as just one thing, because I don't know. I mean, and this is again, part of a larger conversation, but I think Obama, some of what he speaks about and writes about is like how some of the access that he had came from more dominant cultural side of himself. And so I think it's, it's just interesting because being a president is a tremendous achievement. And also I think if he's positioned in a certain way, it leaves out some of the reality of some of the open doors and the networking and the things that happened as a result of 
his white side as well. So yeah, I think it's a really nuanced but necessary conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, I I don't want to take away what that historical election had for people, but there's more, there's more people. (laughs) Malcolm, in your conversation with Sarah Bella, the two of you perfectly encapsulated what so many of us felt as we experienced a shift in the political landscape, while also navigating the existing cultural norms around race. You mentioned Obama, and I know for me, you know, obviously his background was being mixed. It was obviously a big deal about being the first Black president, but at times would also bring in the fact that he was mixed into his experience. And I think for me, that was also a big moment in a lot of ways. At times, sometimes we brought the word exotifying. I definitely felt that at times after Obama too. So it wasn't always all positive, but it was a big moment in terms of people and also myself just thinking about mixed identity a lot more. And did you feel that way too at all? Yeah. I mean, that was so refreshing to finally see that and have that and also understand what he was dealing with. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like it was such a tightrope. I really felt for him in that situation and was so proud too. And I feel like ever since that, we're dealing with all the things that come with, I guess, maybe having a, a world where all these identities can be universally together, right? And be strong and have more important things focus, which I feel like he was trying to bring to that message, you know, like we have healthcare or environmental, you know, like try to really put more focus on these major topics that affects everybody. Right. And you said that so well about what he was dealing with, because I, I would always empathize you know, with certain situations where I felt like, yeah, he would be criticized for not being one way or the other, but also being put in a box often about how he was, he was both, right? He was the first black president and the first mixed president, right? But I think there was times where people would be, well, which one is it, right? Or, or, right, right, exactly. (laughs) And that being a part of our experience in a lot of ways, you know, being proud or trying to embrace both but also also mixed, right? You don't have to exclude. We've talked a lot throughout this season about identity and how multiracial people face obstacles to embracing themselves and their cultural influences, or can feel that who they are is interrogated or isn't accepted and embraced, or like they have to check parts of themselves at the door. But the more that we can create a culture that embraces, amplifies, and accurately represents biracial and multiracial people and stories the more we can support multiracial people in fostering fuller, more cohesive senses of ourselves and our identities. It's critical, though, that this representation is informed by the real-life experiences of mixed people and doesn't seek to make us a bridge between racial binaries, but instead to bring forth one more dimension of identity and experience. Malcolm, earlier we were speaking about language, and one of the things that I think about often when I say your name or I hear your name is that you were named after Malcolm X, which just goes to show how even from the moment that we enter this world, we can be repositories of culture and history. But anyway, there's a Malcolm X quote that I love. In the summer of 1964, at the Organization of Afro-American Unity, Malcolm X said, quote, A race of people is like an individual man until it uses its own talent, takes pride in its own history, expresses its own culture, affirms its own selfhood. It can never fulfill itself. 
So to those who lent their voices to this podcast, to those listening, and to all the amazing narratives, artwork, and podcasts out there that lift up the voices and perspectives of multiracial folks around the world, we are taking pride in our histories, affirming our selfhood, and expressing the cultures we come from, as well as the uniqueness that comes from being not just multiracial, but also multicultural. Thank you for listening to this episode of the On Being Biracial podcast. Be sure to subscribe now so you'll hear our remaining four episodes. And please like, rate, and review the podcast. Thank you to all this season's interviewees. You can find their names on our website, onbeingbiracial.com, along with information on our partners and supporters. And thank you to our amazing producer, editor, and fact checker, Emily Previty, and her team at Cavenda Media, and Paul Kondo, our outstanding editor and producer. Special thanks to the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, powered by Resolve Philly, for their significant financial support that made this project possible, and Jean Son, their Director of Collaborations. And thank you to everyone who has bought us a coffee so far this season. We'll put a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page in the show notes in case you'd like to contribute. But by far, the biggest contribution you can make is to listen and share. So thanks again, and until next time.